Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3. And as I said earlier this week on social media, the first thing I want to say is thank you. Thank you so much for rocking with the Equity Matters Podcast. We have officially crossed over a thousand followers on both Twitter and on Instagram. A huge achievement and accomplishment. And what's really exciting about it for me is we are engaging in necessary dialogue and putting equity matters together. There were a few different pillars that I thought about for how I wanted things to to go or, or values, if you will. And one of them was to create space for necessary dialogue. The other adding to individuals critical consciousness. But what I'm seeing right now on social media is really exciting. And I have a love hate relationship with social media. So being able to see a space where people want to talk about difficult conversations and people are there to learn and not to take up space. I'm, I'm so elated with, with that. And so moving beyond the, the equity matters announcements, let's do a quick preface for today's episode. Think about what's happening in the world today and think about what we've experienced over the past year and a half as it pertains to the lives lost due to police murder, I call it what it is. When we think about what we've seen with COVID-19 and how certain populations are disproportionately impacted, who's going to tell the story in years to come and what parts are they going to leave out? What are the consequences of that? And so when we think about racism and education, we have to think about the storytellers. And we have to think about how we often pick and choose what can be shared. And so as you read about the current attack on critical race theory and critical race theorists and the the work that they do, you can't help but immediately pick up on the notion that that's racist. I mean, point period blank. It is the fact that we have individuals out there who are willing to challenge the dominant narrative, who are willing to push the social justice agenda, people who are willing to stand up for blackness, people who are willing to use their voice to advocate for marginalized voices. Those are the people that one, I like to have on the show and two, that we need out doing the work. And so I'm, ready to introduce you all to Dr. Frederick V. Ingram, to Dr. Frederick Ingram Jr., who is one of those people who I've come to really admire over the past two years or so. That's how long we, I can't even say I know the man we we met via Twitter, but being able to share space with him and engage in dialogue and just see the way that he maneuvers and just the pure, unadulterated black boy joy that that he presents. I I just enjoy being in that space. And so I'm excited to introduce you all to Dr. Frederick Ingram Jr. Dr. Ingram, would you like to introduce yourself? Certainly. Uh, Dr. Frederick Ingram, um, current assistant professor of instruction at the University of Texas at Arlington. Um, I am a Cali uh, born, but New York native, uh, and that gets a lot of people flustered, but yeah, I was born in, uh, born in the Bay. 
Um, but but I uh, grew up in, in upstate New York, so I'm a New Yorker. Uh, went to school, Johnson C. Smith in Charlotte um, as an undergrad. Did my master's work while I was in Charlotte as well. Uh, moved up to DC for the last almost nine years. Uh, did my doc work at Northeastern and now I'm Texas living. So I have been everywhere in the country living except the Midwest. So <laughs> that's my story. You're not missing much as someone who's at been all. in the Midwest their whole life. <laughs> Midwest is plain for a reason. <laughs> so let's start things off with kind of level setting, right? So what exactly does anti-racism mean for folks who are not familiar with the term? Certainly. Um, and, and it's basically for me the way that it sounds. Anti-racism is doing the exact opposite of racism. Um, I think people often look for it or, or consider it to be um, a little bit more complex than that, but really at the root of it is simply uh, racism is an act or, you know, of systemic issues or systematic issues, depending on how you're navigating it. And to be an anti-racist is to be direct opposite of that. So it means being intentional about oppressive systems. It means being intentional about disrupting systems. It means being intentional about calling out acts of white supremacy and, 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 and all other things that take part in that or come from that or stem from white supremacy and being aware of what those things look like. Um, anti-racism um, is an action, right? To be an anti-racist uh, to me is a verb. It's, it's very much the, the, <laughs> the opposite of being a racist. Being a racist means that you're doing active work to subjugate people and to uh, minimize the lived experiences of a particular group of people. To be anti-racist means to be fighting directly against what that is. So a lot of people for me, especially over the last few months, got their badges because they read a couple of books. A couple of books that told them what anti, you know, how to be an anti-racist and what being an anti, and being anti-racist is. And a lot of people kind of took that and ran with it for a few weeks and then went right back into their white supremacist like thinking when it was time to vote. So we all know that clearly they don't know what anti-racism is. Anti-racism is doing intentional work. It is literally waking up every single day and doing the exact opposite of being a racist for the rest of your life. It is not a single event. It's not isolated. It is intentional work. And I think that's where a lot of people get caught caught up on because it's not like you don't get to pick and choose. It's also why I, I detest the term ally. And you probably heard me say this often um, because being an ally allows you to float in and out of spaces freely um, with your privilege. But being a co-conspirator allows you to be able to sit in it and be very intentional about the way that you show up for people, much like being an anti-racist does. So many things I want to pick on there. I mean, the <laughs> same thing about allies. I'm like, are you an ally? Or are you just spending a little time on my side of the fence? Like, <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So let's dig deeper into anti-racism. How does this show up in the classroom when we're talking about education? And we can speak range. I mean, I'm sure this there's examples with even like the elementary school setting up to where you are now in higher ed. Right. So I think what's interesting is, is there's more racism than anti-racism in education. And, it's, and it shows up, I think racism really shows up in the curriculum. It shows up in how 
we whitewash history and we don't allow the reality of the history and historical times to be told uh, factually. We like to doctor them up. And by we, I mean the systems of education within the United States. They like to doctor them, doctor them up and make certain people heroes when actually they should be considered terrorists, rapists, um, all sorts of other actual truth, but we don't tell it that way. Um, so to me, racism is more prevalent in the educational system than anti-racism. And one of the things that's very clear is when you talk about being more intentional about the works that you include when you're teaching certain certain books that you use, certain authors, certain scholars, it is not shortcutting learning about actual theoretical frameworks that were birthed from African-Americans. And I think when you look at education, there's always, even for the most well-intentioned white people, there's always a sense or a need to shortcut the process, right? And then to pretend that there's an understanding or an unearthing, an unearthing of thoughts. But the reality of it is, is like them trying to uh, skip across the process. For me, uh, anti-racism really shows up to those of us who are disruptors of education, right? Those of us who look at education from a problematic perspective and where violence occurs and where there's harm that occurs and doing the opposite of that instead of instead of teaching children that Christopher Columbus, you know, discovered America, we teach the reality that Christopher Columbus, it was taught to us that he discovered America, but really the reality of it is he was part of a coalition of people who raped and pillaged the land, right? You know, so being very mindful of how we engage with historical perspectives for me, in my classroom, I do not teach anything regarding uh, education or criminal justice from a lens where when you think about it, where white people are victims and black people and other uh, marginalized groups are the culprits or the, the offenders. I, I completely flip that whole perspective on its head and show you literal examples of whiteness in action, white privilege in action, and marginalized groups um, as the actual victims in systems that have been perpetuated via racism. So that to me is how you do anti-racism in education. It is literally taking the bounds and you know of which you are to teach and teaching it from a perspective that is more authentic to the truth. Um, and, and it doesn't feed into the centering of whiteness, which I adamantly reject. So I recently did a presentation at my alma mater around power and privilege when it comes to social work, because right. there's a pretty clear dominant narrative that social work has always been altruistic. It's been these women who came together to support marginalized groups. And so I did the same approach and said, okay, how many of you have heard of Jane Addams? Like that is the so-called mother of the social work movement. Mm -hmm. But how many of you have heard of Ida B. Wells? Mm. How many of you have read the letters between the two of them? Right. Asked about Dorothy Height, you know, asked about E. Franklin Frazier. Like these are black right. social workers who get written out of history, who right. have made significant contributions. Right. Apart from the fact that Jane Addams had a whole letter and I think it was Crisis Magazine talking about, not Crisis, it was, it was another, mm -hmm. talking about 
why lynching was okay. And it's like, you, you missed the entire point of what's going on here. And that's what the foundation of social work practice is built on. And it's something that we often miss, unfortunately, because it's whitewashed in our storytelling. And then right. that becomes the dominant narrative. So people right. go on to want to aspire to be Jane Addams without realizing the history. Right, and I think that the biggest issue with all of this is that people, they want to do the work of being anti-racist or doing work that affects marginalized groups, but they don't want to decenter whiteness right they don't want to decolonize the way that they think and like that is the exact opposite of doing anti-racist work right because you have to step away from the dominant voice and you got to step away from the voice that is often the oppressed uh the oppressor's voice and if you can't do that then you are probably not in the right space in your journey to be trying to lead any causes uh for uh resisting or or reclassifying that of those of us who are oppressed or have oppressed voices and i think that's really one of the areas where um a lot of people are struggling academics social work medicine when you think about it many of them have not been challenged with the concept or had white supremacy so blatant in their face where they've had to make an actual decision on where I stand in this regard, how do I either uphold white supremacy or how do I disrupt it in my day-to-day -day existence? A lot of them are not doing that or haven't done it previously and are now being forced to address it because you can't, you can't avoid it. We are literally in a pandemic where the whole entire world is shut down and everybody has to come face to face with the reality of who they are, right? And in doing that introspection, it allows you to see everybody else for who they are. That is the one benefit to having the entire world shut down. So all of these people who are pretending or who have been pretending to have done the reading, it's coming out, right? And how they speak and how they address particular things, how they respond to particular things, what side of history they're on, how they voted, right? How they canvassed for people who were voting and their rationale for why they voted particular kind of ways. So to me, it's been an eye-opening past almost year, right? Um, where we're learning a lot about people and the people who are serious about this work are really like trying their best to unlearn so many of their harmful practices and to relearn ways in which they can step in the gap to be able to assist people. And those who were doing that work are already doing that work and they're just locked into it now. There are other people who have discovered how they benefit from their privilege and how they haven't been assisting other people. And then there are people who have doubled down and really feel like, you know, these are isolated experiences that we're talking about, or these are things that we're making up and they're still willing to make us be crazy than to admit that there's uh, kinks in the system. Don't get me started on elections. <laughs> Like I, I watched, you know, the state of Michigan everywhere that I've ever lived. So there's two places within the state where blue, mm -hmm. where I live currently blue, mm -hmm. everywhere around me, red. And these are right. my coworkers, right? These are the people who my kids go to the daycare with their kids. And it's like, I know something about you now that I'm not able to forget. Right. A fair. Yeah. I, I'm with you. Like that's to me, it's, 
we can agree to disagree about an athlete. We can agree to disagree about about sports. We can agree to disagree whether sugar or or or, 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 or you know what I'm saying. Like we can agree, we can agree to disagree on that. We can't agree to disagree about my oppression and the oppression of my people, right? We can't agree to disagree about where you stand on racism and white supremacy. That's not something I'm willing to look past. It's not something I'm willing to look over. I don't care what we have in common. Like, like I'm not your token Negro, right? Like, I don't want to be friends with anybody who is able to be able to classify the worthiness of my Blackness based on how offensive I am to you. Right. And that for me is, is an unforgivable thing. And I, there's people, man, listen, the pandemic has shown me so much. One of my professors from undergrad, one of my favorite professors from undergrad, wrote one of my letters of recommendation for my doctoral program, bro. Um, came out a Trump supporter about a year ago. And she was the professor in my program the most popular professor, the one who had all of the black students in her office, right? She was also the professor, the only professor of the three in my major that didn't have a doctorate. So she already has privilege working for her mm -hmm. and turned out. And when I say, when she came out, it was gut-wrenching. It was, it was my president is gangster and I love it. And we, when I tell you, everybody who had her through the years were floored because you think you know somebody, you think you understand their perspective, you think that they get it because they worked at an HBCU and taught there for years and, you know, and kissed the Black babies that their students had and all of that. And at the end of the day, they will vote against your best interests and even the best interests of themselves solely because their whiteness. And that was a sobering, that was a sobering experience. But if that told me if they will sit in our space and share space with us and break bread with us and still vote in that capacity, bro, <laughs> bro, like I, yeah, man. So I'm telling you, I've learned so much. <laughs> The, the image that comes to mind is like a probate for racists, but we'll we'll say that for another day. <laughs> right. <laughs> so back to anti-racism and back to the classroom. So what are some of the barriers to implementing this approach? I mean, we're going to talk more about the solution, but I imagine a lot of folks might even tense up with just hearing the word anti-racist or anti-racism. So I think the benefit to someone like me is that it's all in my work. All you gotta do is hit the Google function and Google my name, and that's all that's gonna pop up. That's boss, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's all you're gonna see. So to be surprised that I would bring an anti-racist lens to a classroom, you have had to have been sleeping the entire time that you interviewed me, right? And so one of the things that I've decided for myself years ago, but really in the past few years, is that. I was no longer catering to whiteness and what that means. I was going to do the work of disruption, whatever that meant, right? If consequences come with that, then so be it. But for me, in understanding the role that I have, a sobering thought is two officers who murdered innocent Black people, Atatiana Jefferson 
Botham Jean. The officers that murdered them are graduates of the program that I now teach in. If that wasn't a reality check of how important anti-racist learning is in what I do, it made me even more intentional about it. Barriers to it is that you obviously are gonna have students who are white supremacists or who were raised that way and adamantly reject this notion or this idea of racism and white supremacy and will argue you down about everything that it could be except for what it is. And I've seen it, it showed up in my class. Um, it showed up in my evals, right? It showed up in discussion. It showed up in the email I got earlier this semester, you know, uh, where they told me they thought I talked too much about racism. And I don't feel like I talk enough about it. You know what I mean? So it shows up in those spaces, but the reality of it is, is that I'm not gonna change that because it needs to be said. Um, and, and to that point, it's for me, it's, 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 it's necessary that these students are engaging with this material. It's, it's necessary that they're understanding the other side of the law that perhaps their privilege doesn't allow them to see. I showed them a lot of, you know, material, you know, regarding uh, the experiences of Black folks who don't have privilege, right? They, they learned about a lot of young black people who were incarcerated, you know, for, for lesser offenses that should have never ended up, you know, in, in jail. They've learned about, you know, they've seen cops display um, and, and, and abuse of force, right? While also watching cops give grace to people that look like them. So I, I made sure that they watched it. I made sure that they watched the 13th. I made sure that they watched um, when they see us, you see what I'm saying? Like intentional in that way. So they can physically watch and understand that this isn't just a movie. This is an actual story on the lived experiences of black people. And so that's what I mean by being super intentional about the way that I engage. A majority of my students were like, thank you so much. You know, I had no idea that these stories exist. I had no idea these things occurred had it not been for this class. And to me, that's shocking, right? Because it's like, how do you not know that these things are re very real experiences? So yeah, I definitely see the benefit and regardless of how the, the minority uh, in the class feel, I'm not gonna stop. That's how I address the barriers. <laughs> I like that. Let's talk solution, right? So mm -hmm. one of the things about anti-racism is really, it's, it's a part of a journey, right? It's a long-term mm -hmm. commitment. And mm -hmm. so, at a high level, what are some of the goals of an anti-racist approach? To me, it's to get people to understand the way that power works and the way that privilege works and the way that those two things together subjugate other people and create a, a miserable lived experience that um, would otherwise be, be manageable if it wasn't for added factors. Um, understanding the importance of anti-racism is as important as understanding why you need to eat your vegetables, right? Like it's very necessary for your development, it's very necessary for your health, it's very necessary for your growth. Um, I think that everyone understanding if we help the least of us, we will always help the most of us. And I think 
a lot of people go backwards because they want to focus on how we can help the most of us while still disenfranchising the least of us. So it's like, if you, if you do something that will help our most impoverished folks, right, our most, you know, marginalized folks, our most abused folks, then the, the, the top half of, of people will benefit. And, and getting people to really understand it, understand it at that most basic level, um, for me, is, is structurally how um, I believe it would be effective. I know you mentioned early on about some of the hats that you wear, particularly around Disruptor, but what other roles do you play in creating that anti-racist learning environment? So like mentor, right? I play friend, I play, I, it, it's, and, it's, and it's gonna sound crazy when I say this, as much of um, an anti-racist um, and, and a disruptor I am, um, I still have white folks who I grew up with who still feel comfortable coming to me and asking me particular things, right? About the readings, right? About um, whether or not particular things are offensive, whether or not um, it's okay for me to have a stance and if, if it's okay for me to say this without offending anybody, right? So I, so I serve, you know, in, in the capacity of like mentor, right? And, 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 and helping guide for certain people, not everybody, because you know, you need to go do your own reading, but people that I know who I know are actually serious about like, I'm genuinely trying to be involved and I want to make sure that I'm showing up in a way that is helpful and not hindering, right? Or I'm showing up in a way that, that doesn't um, continue to allow my privilege to be front and center, but it allows me to let people know that I'm here if and when they need it, right? And that's kind of the approach that, that I'll take. And I've had, you know, a couple of people who, um, from home who are white, who specifically, you know, contact me and have asked, you know, for that level of understanding. And I don't have a problem with doing that. So I think that, you know, um, there's balance um, in, 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 in that. So um, that's probably what the other hats that, I, that I'm wearing behind the scenes. Let's get back to the system, right? And mm -hmm. thinking anti-racism, not at its core, but there's definitely a philosophical approach that goes with it. And so there's the mm -hmm. philosophy that being anti-racist is what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. How do we get others to embrace that kind of approach? And I'm, I'm talking specifically around, I mean, this could be students, this could be other administrators, this could be other faculty, because if all they know is whiteness and white centeredness, mm -hmm. someone comes in and says, hey, we, we have to disrupt and decolonize our current model. How do we get people to say, yeah, that's what we should be doing? Well, first you gotta tell the truth, right? And you have to be able to position yourself where the ability to learn is, is acceptable because I think trying to do the work <clears throat> excuse me, where you have no support or where you have people who don't believe it or believe in it, it's gonna, it's gonna prove, you know, futile, right? Like it's gonna, it's almost gonna be pointless. But if you're in a space where people are receptive to that, then it's a little bit different. For example, um, I led a talk with the university's IT department a few weeks ago, and it was about anti-racism and white supremacy and how to, how to be an anti-racist and understanding white supremacy and racism. And I talked about racial battle fatigue and I talked about um, cultural competence. I talked about interest convergence and those sorts of things. And at the end of it, it was really about getting them 
getting folks to understand. And the, um, I don't know if he's the VP or, or of the department, but he was like, I learned so much here. Well, first, we know that there's a willingness to learn because as the VP, you allow, you know, other folks in here to be able to create initiatives that talk about the role that race and racism play within your department. So that's already a benefit because you're doing the work in, as far as allowing or, or, or um, I won't say co-signing, but um, being in, 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 in collaboration with the efforts of uh, understanding the role of race, racism, white supremacy, and, and having those conversations and facilitating those conversations, being supportive of those conversations, but also stepping back and allowing the experts to do the talking. That was one of the things that I actually loved is that there wasn't a centering of whiteness in that discussion. It was literally, um, here's the floor, right? And they stood back and allowed the teaching to occur. And for those, for people to ask questions, I was asked questions like, what do we do when we start providing all these opportunities for, for persons of color and white people get their feelings hurt, right? Or white people feel like people are getting things, but what about us? And I said, well, the first thing you got to stop doing is centering whiteness. And I said it very blank, just like that. I'm a call full of maybe a hundred something people and, and majority of them white and very, just like that, straight up, right? And I, and I, and I make no no, no, no false equivocations. I didn't stutter. You heard what I said, you know, very, very blank and like that. Um, because I feel like the people that want to learn and the people that want to do the work will, and those who don't, don't. So you don't spend your time trying to change people who have already decided for themselves that regardless of what you say and how much sense it makes that they're not going to budge. Like you are literally spinning your wheels in the sand at that point. You have to focus on the people that are on the fence that understand that I don't agree with the things that are happening, but I don't necessarily have the bandwidth to really talk about it or really to engage with it. And those are people that you pull in. And then you do the work with those who have already decided for themselves that I'm in. You know, what do you need me to do and where can I assist? That's who you talk to, that's who you help. But mostly you focus on your people because those are the ones that need the understanding. I, I'm not so much uh, of service to white people understanding what it means to be anti-racist, right? Like. It is what it is, right? Either you're going to be anti-racist or you're not, right? And then if you are, you're going to engage and you're going to ask the questions and you're going to be present in the discussion or, or you're not, right? That's not really my cause. My cause is to get our people to understand the way that all of these structures work and how you can do the work of disrupting them so that way you're able to have some semblance of peace in the work that you're doing, right? Um, and so I think that that needs to be understood. We can't be doing this work because we're so busy or we're so focused on how we get white people to understand. That's not my goal, and I don't care. <laughs> so in that same vein, you know, for those people who are engaged, those people who are ready to, you know, commit themselves to this type of work, how do they go about deepening their own critical consciousness? And I know for me, I've gotten real comfortable, like, you know, Google works great. Like, don't don't come ask me. Like yeah. you can learn so much, but when we're thinking about people who, I'm not gonna say we trust them, that's a, that's a reach, but people who right. understand, want to learn more and want to do the right thing, how do they do that? So I think those who want to do the right thing, most of those people, and, we, and I see them on Twitter daily, the ones who are trying to do the right thing, right? They're following the right people. They're not taking up space. They're not making the conversation or the discussion about them 
even if what's being said hurts. They're on the sidelines just watching and learning and doing the reading because if you listen to enough of us long enough, we're going to drop some crumbs, right, for you to kind of pick up and, and, and to kind of, you know, take on and to absorb. And I think that a lot of them are doing that. A lot of them have, have been following the teachings of the, the right people and are, and, are, and are following right along. And, and it's one of those things, too. It's like, you know, in our struggle, there have always been people who were not us, who were along, you know, on, along for the ride, helping along the way as best as they could without making it about them, right? Without making it about, look at me helping. I'm helping, see, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it, right, right? Like, look at me getting my sticker. Like, we, we, you know, we've always had those people who weren't doing that. The ones who are, are the ones that we don't need to be concerned with because they're not doing it for the right reasons. I've, I've seen quite a few um, of our white colleagues um, who are actually engaging, who are, uh, you know, you know, taking the privilege that they have and, and highlighting other people, right? And, and shouting out the great works of, 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 you know, of all of us and saying, hey, I recommend this person or I recommend following this person or I recommend reading the work of this person. I've been watching it. I've been watching it, you know? I don't need to give you kudos for it because you shouldn't be doing it, right? But I've been watching it. Um, and I, I definitely, you. you know what I mean? I, I see you. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I definitely see it. And I also see the ones who will not. And they and they want you to hold their hand. And I, and I just don't think that that's for us to do. It's not. It's not. And the social worker in me has to ask, you know, where does healing fit in anti-racist education practice? Because there, there's a point where after we get through white students or white faculty for that matter, feeling guilty about the things that they have actually not done. I mean, it's, it's historical and, so, and sometimes it's current. Mm. But where do we get to a point where we start talking about healing? I think when people decide to be vulnerable, right? When people decide to be their authentic self and they've, and they've decided to allow the learning in, that's when you'll be able to see healing, right? You'll be able to see, you know, I've seen it in, in, in most of my classes where students who are like, I have shown up in this particular way previously. And after being in this class or after reading in this class, I realize that I've been wrong this whole time, right? Or I realized that some of the perspectives that I grew up with were problematic, right? Or I realized that I benefit from these systems that help to keep other people downtrodden and understanding those, those, those spaces and having our students, you know, our black students understand that these experiences are not your fault, right? Understanding that the way that you view things or the way that 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 things have been pressed upon you aren't your fault. And once everybody gets clear on that, I think you can have a real moment of healing, right? The problem is getting people to have those moments, right? Where I realize that being light skin or brown skin is an advantage that a dark skinned person doesn't have, right? Or, or having long hair is not an advantage to someone who has kinky hair, right? In some instances, right? And understanding that um, being Black or being white passing is 
a benefit in some circles and how have I used these things to my benefit and understand that at the root of all of that is white supremacy. And I feel like one of the things I struggle with the most with our own people is watching them be actors of white supremacy and not realize it. You know what I mean? Um, a lesson in Clubhouse, a lesson in Twitter, will, 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 a stroll through either of those two places will remind you just how affected we are by white supremacy and we don't even realize it. And for me, it is hard. That is hard to watch, it's hard to see. Um, and it's hard because you wanna scream like, everybody stop, right? And just listen so we can all get clear on this and we can begin to move together healed and it's going to take a lot bro it's going to take a lot because so many of us just like the white people who don't want to do the reading don't want to do the reading so many of us don't want to understand that a lot of the things that we have been taught have been incorrect right and have been harmful and we're perpetuating those things right I had these conversations with my mom. My mom was like, why do you want to disrupt everything? <laughs> everything needs disruption, mom. And that's what I and that's what I said. I said, mom, because everything needs disruption. And she is like, sheesh, leave some things alone. No, because all of those things are problematic, right? Check the so, room. You know what I mean? So once we all understand that, that's where we can heal, right? And I find myself having very challenging conversations, you know, with people, people who are the closest to me, my grandmother, my dad, my mom and getting them to see where they have blind spots even. You know what I mean? Um, and, it's, and it hurts. It's not the most, um, it's not the easiest thing to do. Probably one of the most difficult things you'll ever do um, with your own self-work is realizing how I either have had these things enacted upon me or how I've been an actor of these things. Um, and that's rough. That's rough, but I think in in learning how to navigate those things is where you can get your healing. I really want to talk about Clubhouse, but <laughs> I just don't. <laughs> I don't. I have Clubhouse battle fatigue. If that counts for anything. Oh, no, that's like you know what? There's going to be so many articles that come forward about it, and I'm not even mad about it because yes, like I log in and I log out. Total yeah. seven seconds total, right? And it's really a matter of like, are we doing this again today? Like the longest I've spent on Clubhouse is when they had Lion King, right? When Lion <laughs> King was on there, I was on it the other night when they did the Dream Girls mm -hmm. auditions. You know what I mean? Like that's what I have an amazing time on that app. Outside of that, like I'm not, I don't want to be a part of LLC Twitter, Bitcoin Twitter, Real you know, 4X <laughs> Twitter, right? I don't want to buy a house you know, 38 houses across the country today. Like, I just don't want to. I didn't come here for that. And nah. and yeah, and so all of that, bro. And then the, the conversations about like, you know, black women, you know, come in and tell black men what you need us to do for you. And black men, women, black men come in and tell us what you need us to do for you. And all those discussions are led by the gang. Get out of here. <laughs> it's, it's a terrible, terrible place. <laughs> I've had maybe one room that I've actually enjoyed, and it was like a social mm -hmm. or Twitter meetup. Mm -hmm. But the thing that's like most interesting to me about Clubhouse is the fact that it's just become another commodity. And yeah. the fact that a friend sent me a screenshot the other day 
people are writing like clubhouse moderator in their bios yes like, what the hell is that are you going to put that on your linkedin is that going to go it's, liter it's literally it's literally the next level of influencer for an app that you can't influence anybody on right and it's hey. i'm like what like here's the thing like even my, my bio is the most simplistic thing like i've seen people's bios and it reads like like a cv i've seen like a cv it, it has mine is literally like maybe two lines total and they're and it and it's like not even long but also here's my thing you can google me i can't google most of those people <laughs> like, you know what i mean i'm like i'm sorry being a moderator on clubhouse i don't i've never heard of you right? <laughs> terrible like get out of here bro i'm telling you the 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 it's just one another one of those apps that allows people to to make up false identities instead of dealing with who they are. But it's all, it's all part it's all a part of the same thing, and that's the part that I think is so hard to watch is knowing that this, this is all a part of the same system. These are all actions based off of the system that we live in, where we feel like this is how we survive, right? This is how we exist. This is how we come out of it, right? When every time I watch people have conversations about black financial literacy, and I'm just like, you realize that <laughs> you can't financially literate yourself out of racism, right? Like you realize that, like no matter how many cheat codes you get, no matter how many seminars you sit in on player, like the reality of it is, is like this is what it is, and why are y'all? fighting so hard to understand that, right? Like, I want to be able to show somebody how I, how I bought a house, fine. But trying to pretend like there isn't a whole system that is meant to keep you subjugated, like, seriously. Seriously. Keep it. Keep it. Yeah. So, yeah. I think this is a good segue, right? And mm -hmm. we're getting ready to wrap up. You said that people can Google you. Yeah. <laughs> how, how do people keep up with you and your work? Um, I'm, I'm very, I'm very active on Twitter. Twitter is a dope place because you get to see me be both Fred and Dr. Ingram. So it's my preferred place, you know? Um, but if it's, it's a, if it's of a serious nature, you can, my LinkedIn is available. Um, my, my, my work email is, is available on the, on the school's website. Um, I have Instagram as well. Under no circumstances are you to ever Facebook me. Uh, <laughs> and people keep making that mistake and they keep sitting sitting in purgatory um i'm like linkedin twitter <clears throat> instagram my my work email are all very public things you can find me at any of those places um honestly and truly um but yeah so you know any of any of those those spaces um definitely feel free to connect reach out to me um yeah is there any take-home message that you want to leave the listeners with? Anything that you, you may have left on the table? Um, I want to reiterate that anti-racist work is action work. It is a work of a journey. It is not something that can be done, said, fixed in a weekend. It is intentionally getting up every day and disrupting practices that ha have existed for centuries and it is literally doing the work of making sure that you're not showing up as an agent of white supremacy but as an agent of the disruption 
That's Dr. Ingram, folks. There we go. <laughs> uh, Dr. Ingram, I appreciate you taking the time. I think in many ways, like I, I know, obviously I follow you on Twitter, but there's so much that I've learned just from things that you put out there, whether it's just resources or it's just commentary that encourages me to go look into, look further. So as folks yeah. are out there doing the work for themselves, definitely know that Dr. Ingram has the work for you. Yes, <laughs> I appreciate this combo always. One of the things that stands out to me as a podcaster is this notion of timelessness. And sometimes it's unfortunate. Other times it's more of a blessing. But to say that we recorded this episode in January of this year and the things that we've seen between January and now reflect the need for system change, the need to, to be out there advocating in these spaces and doing the work. When I consider what's happening in North Carolina with Nicole Hannah-Jones and the tenure system and the sexism and the racism <laughs> interwoven in there, it's just amazing to me that entities and institutions that are supposed to be allegedly, I'm, I'm using air quotes, but nobody can see me, that are supposed to be anti-oppressive are usually the worst ones and it's funny that these organizations academia government private wherever love to toss around the work of dr kimberly crenshaw and talk about intersectionality and then decide which parts matter to them in any given moment but that's for another podcast for another day speaking of I believe that I will be opening up a call for features very soon. So if you're interested in joining on the Equity Matters podcast, look out for that. Or you can always email us at equitymatterspodcast at gmail.com. I'm doing things a little bit differently for the fall. I want to slow things down just a little bit. So recording might decrease a little bit. And I also want to remind folks that the Social Justice Academy is coming. So just get ready. You can follow us on social media. That's probably one of the best ways to engage. I, we put out a lot of really great content to get folks thinking, usually in anticipation for episodes or after that episode, maybe pose a few questions where people can consider or at least reflect on some of the things that were said. So follow us on Instagram. That's at Equity Matters Podcast. And on Twitter, that's at Equity Matters PC. If you go to either one, just use the link in the bio. It'll take you to the other. I try to make things easier for folks. We have another episode coming in two weeks around academia and what happens when there's an incident on campus that needs immediate response when we're talking about racial injustice or homophobia or whatever the oppression may be of the day. And so you will hear from Dr. Brandon Elmore, who I just learned in preparing for this episode, is also a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. I didn't mean to put two alphas in the same month, but, you know, y'all cool. And I'm looking forward to the dialogue that comes after that, because there were a few incidents when I was on campus that I'll share in the next episode, but just never knowing how things happen behind the scenes. And so really looking forward to that episode. And as we prepare to wrap up, 
you already know my speech that equity matters.